My name is Julian Chambliss. I'm a professor of English and a core faculty in the Consortium for Critical Diversity and Digital Ways Research, or CEDAR, at Michigan State University. I'm also the Val Berriman Curator of History at the MSU Museum. And I will be your host for this episode of Every Tongue's Got to Confess. Every Tongue Got to Confess is a podcast designed to document the dynamic discussion about education, enterprise and institutions, and activism intrinsic to the ideology that found Edenville and shaped its most famous daughter. The purpose of this podcast series is to explore issues facing communities of color globally by listening to the voices of attendees at the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Founded by the Associated Preserve Edenville, the Zora Festival has long embraced an educational aim inspired by Zora Neale Hurston's celebration of Black culture and life. This production is a joint project between the Associated Preserve Edenville community, Michigan State University, and the University of Central Florida. During the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities, interviewer Grace Chung talked with Tania Johnson in Edenville, Florida, about Afrofuturism. Johnson is a speculative fiction author, poet, and musician. She's the author of several books, including Smoketown, a novel, as well as Starting Friction, a collection of poetry and prose. Have a listen to their conversation. Could you please introduce yourself? My name is Tania D. Johnson, uh, speculative fiction author. Great. Uh, will you share a little bit about your upbringing? Or? Upbringing. Um, born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. So, um, single parent household most of my life, in between um, very different economic classes between my two parents. So, that's a lot of um, sub suburban upbringing with. Um, more poor people's sensibility. And I'm the youngest. How many siblings do you have? Three. Okay. Yeah, brother and a sister. How long did you live in Kentucky? Until I graduated from high school. So once I graduated, I left Kentucky. I've been, well, I visited, but I've never lived there since. Where did you go next? Went to college in um, Florida, Sarasota, Florida, a place called New College, Florida. And then I went to grad school in New York to NYU. Um, and after that, Various other cities, Atlanta, D.C., um, someplace else I'm forgetting, and then eventually back to Florida. Can you share how you came into your work with Afrofuturism? Well, I've always written stories. I've always written stories and songs, and for me, the things that interest me, it's really creating my own worlds and universes because I want to examine certain questions that, that speculative fiction is large enough to encompass. And because I want to tell the stories of all kinds of people, and I'm particularly interested in the stories of people of color um, and what the future holds, that has come to be called Afrofuturism. So I feel like I started writing something and then one day someone labeled it this. <laughs> so. How would you define speculative fiction? For me, speculative fiction is anything that's not realistic. So fantasy, science fiction, alternative history, magic realism, weird fiction, anything that doesn't have to uh, abide by the rules of you know, physics that we have to abide by. Okay. Yeah. And how would you define Afrofuturism? It's uh, a tricky one. I mean, I think, I think Afrofuturism is a convenient term for black speculative fiction. 
Now that's not the way the, the, the guy that penned the phrase, that's not how he would define it, but that's what I, I think it's a handy marketing label and it gives people like, um, just an easy way to understand it and to be interested in it. Yeah. What was your first like, encounter with black speculative fiction or Afrofuturism? Um, for me, I read a lot of Octavia Butler when I was a kid, but I think it was probably Beloved. I definitely consider Toni Morrison's Beloved to be speculative fiction. I mean, it's not put in that category because it's quote-unquote literary, so there's still that sort of divergence between what people think is really valuable and they don't call that genre fiction, but I think it was Beloved. And other than that, um, yeah, a lot of Octavia Butler and some Gabriel Garcia Marquez, but that's not black speculative fiction. Still, speculative fiction. <laughs> Um, so did you pursue writing as a student? Uh, I did to a certain extent. Actually my undergrad, funnily enough, said that I'd be able to get a writing degree but that was not the case. So I ended up doing more like anthropology and humanities. But my, um, my undergraduate, my oral baccalaureate was actually about Octavia Butler and the school that I went to, New College, has a lot of, it's a very free program, like you don't have core requirements. It's essentially you create your own program, so I put a lot of writing into the program. And then for grad school I continued to do that. And did oral history actually, a little bit of that. Not as like a, a major, but I took quite a few classes. That's great. Yeah. Um, so from your perspective, what does Afrofuturism uh, offer society at this moment? <clears throat> I think it offers society a lot of things. Um, for better or for worse, one of the main things is people that aren't that didn't necessarily value the perspective of not just the black community in my opinion, like people of color, it, it it makes them value it in a way where they hadn't done before, where like, oh this is worth paying attention to because they happen to have liked Black Panther, so now they're interested in, oh, what what about everything else from someone else's perspective? Like maybe that's interesting. Which should have always been obvious, but right now it's popular, so people are more open to it. Do you think it acts as like a critique? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think it's impossible for a certain amount of social critique to not be part of any literature, to be perfectly honest, but definitely Afrofuturism because you're trying to speculate about what's going to happen from this point that we're at, where could we go from here if we continue on the same sort of um, misguided path, or if we make certain changes, or what does it look like when people have technologies or opportunities that they wouldn't necessarily have, you know, it's just a, more versions of, of the world that the world needs to see so you can decide what it wants to do. Uh, can you share some of your work? Um, I have, currently have three novels? I have a novel in stories, yeah, I have a novel in stories uh, and a sequel that came out last year and those are essentially, it's about, it was it began in genetic reparations for slavery. So the first book is about this genius that creates um, genetic reparations for slavery, but then he eventually opens up. So it's not just black people, it's poor people, because at that point in uh, this future version of the US, all people that don't have a lot of money are suffering from um, just the inequalities that are literally killing them. So, and that because biogenetic adaptations have become a commodity and something that's on the commercial market, rich people can literally evolve away from the rest of humanity and literally survive things um, that are going on in the environment that they created where others can't. So it's, it becomes a survival mechanism. So then I, in the second book I explore what happens with one particular um, 
family that's affected by its biogenetic adaptation. So that's one thing. And then another novel, it's, you know, anxiety and nanotechnology and magic. I have several short stories. I try to, um, I try to take themes that interest me and inject some technology in it to, um, to look at things that I think are important that don't get enough attention. And sometimes, I don't really write escapist stuff, but sometimes I write things that are just to be enjoyed. Yeah. What is some of your main forms of inspiration? Hmm. What is my main form of inspiration? I don't know. I write a lot of songs, so I have some storytelling to music. Usually, I don't even know if I need inspiration. My, I just have one of those brains that's always going. So sometimes you want to capture something like, oh, that's special. Let's let's see what happens if I spend some time on this. So, um, but if I did have to choose something as an inspiration, I would say my fellow human beings and like when people do extraordinary things, and certainly people in my family or people that I've known or even people I've known of that do incredible things um, and just have integrity and honor beyond measure. I like to sort of put a spotlight on that. Are there, do you encounter other writers who work in kind of black speculative fiction? I do because, you know, I come to events uh, like this and I've gone to cons over the years and just gotten to know people sort of socially and um, social media actually, you, you don't know them well because you know, the, you know the virtual version of them but there's some amount of connection so yeah I would say so. What are some of the, is it like other conferences? Other conferences, um, generally I would say conventions and conferences, but social media like this person knows that person, um, but I do better or I, I appreciate more meeting people face to face, so I mm -hmm. think that's why that's worked well for me. Do you ever engage with like the academic world? That Yeah, I do because I was in academia for a while, I never taught. But, you know, went on to grad school and all that. But I go to the uh, International Conference for the Fantastic and the Arts in Orlando. So I've been going to that for a decade. So um, in that sense, I also I meet people there and it gives me an opportunity to see how people are analyzing work that's, um, that's being produced. And then also gives you the opportunity to see authors watch people talk about their work, which is an odd experience, but really interesting. Um, I guess shifting over to Zora Neale Hurston, in your mind, what is the link between Zora Neale Hurston and Afrofuturism? I think because I, I took a lot of cultural anthropology, I'm interested in cultural anthropology. I really feel like that's, and one of the um, downfalls, one of the problems with cultural anthropology is the idea of an ethnography, someone from the outside looking in, you know, and always bringing their situated knowledge, their perspective, their, you know, preconceived notions, and trying to define another society through that. And I think Zora Neale Hurston was very good at flipping that to a certain extent because she wasn't the quote-unquote other that people were used to. So um, she provided a window into worlds that was a little bit more informed, and I think Afrofuturism does that as well when it's done well. Do you think the festival here, engagement with Afrofuturism, continues Hurston's legacy? Hmm. I think it has the potential to do so, but since this is the first year, I can't say for sure that it does or it doesn't. You make a good point. Um, and then, what can contemporary Afrofuturists learn from Zora Neale Hurston? Hmm. 
be brave, be open, be articulate. Hmm, and do it exactly the way that you want to do it, but let that be informed by best practices. You know, she was not egotistical in what she did, but she was confident. And she did it well. And that's where confidence should come from. <laughs> um, which of Zora Neale Hurston's work do you, have you the most... I would have to say the ethnographies, honestly. Just because um, I enjoy fiction, but sometimes I like seeing things that are not fictionalized at all. Like really just seeing someone's observations of the world and how they articulate them and organize them in a way that's just supposed to communicate reality. So, so I can't pick one, but I would say just ethnographies in general. Um, so do you feel that the genre is growing? Yeah, definitely. It's definitely growing because it's commercial and because a lot of people didn't know it existed. And, and for some people, probably a good number of people, if they don't know something's an option, they don't pursue it. Mm -hmm. So now that they know it's an option and maybe I can either make a living or make a name for myself, then they're more open um, to producing work and, you know, it gives them a little bit more hope. So that's good. Are you able to focus fully on writing? No, I have a day job. Okay. I have a day job and I have a business of my own. I have a, some of my work comes out through other presses and some of it comes through my own press. And then because I do storytelling and music and that's so odd, in the sense if there's no infrastructure set up for that, then I need to, to put it out myself. So. How did you kind of intersect the music and storytelling? For me it was natural because uh, I started writing songs and stories at the same time. And for there were portions of my life where I was no much more as a musician. Then as a writer, so this is an interesting time because now I'm sort of no more as a writer. So it was more difficult for me to try to keep them separate, so I just stopped doing that. <laughs> have you met others that are doing similar, like combining those? Things? I haven't, but that's not to say they're not out there because I mean, if I listen to certain jazz albums like Drama's a Woman, you know, and certain um, even some performative poetry, like it gets close. Mm -hmm. But because they're labeling it as something else and it's not as narrative, like they're looking at it as poetry or as music, they don't have as much of a narrative arc, you know? But I think it's like um, storytelling at the end of the day. So it just happens to be a story that includes music. Um, so do you personally also consume a lot of speculative fiction? I don't consume as much as others because I'm trying to create it all the time. <laughs> But I find, especially now, and always, I'm more of a short story reader um, because I don't, like I like really succinct novels that get to the point. I'm sort of an impatient reader, so short stories work well for me. And they have to be done so well that um, it can teach me something about craft as well. Does film ever play into Oh, I love, yeah, I watch movies more than almost more than one should almost <laughs> so, and I've been told strangely that my work is oh this is very cinematic or some other piece like this is very musical things that I never thought of and didn't think were in there but apparently are showing up anyway but yeah yeah and then from the spec from for the science fiction angle that's my favorite movie genre and I've probably seen more science fiction movies than I've read science fiction books because mm -hmm. I read a lot of classics for sci like straight science fiction not speculative mm -hmm. fiction which were, you know, Oxford Book of this and that. They were very, um, some of them are really well written, but they're, they're really from like one or two perspectives, which is crazy considering that you would 
universe upon universe to choose from and it's kind of the same thing. But in my experience, movies have been a little bit better about that, especially when they're not from the U.S. What are some of your favorites? Oh, uh, I gotta go with Aliens because that was probably, you know, when I was a kid, that was a, that was a seminal classic, that was a great protagonist. Um, uh, now that you're asking me, I can't think of the name of it. What was it, the one, something with nine South Africa? I can't remember what it is. But, um... Yeah. You said that you watched a lot of international films? Yeah. Okay. Well, a good number of international films, let's mm -hmm. say. No. Um, have you come across any work in Afrofuturism that are from abroad? For, for Af I want to see Atlantics. I have not seen it yet, but I've heard very good things about it. And that one that I can't think of now, that's, uh, but it's a South African film essentially where it's kind of a parable for apartheid. But they happen to be aliens as opposed to black people and white people and then, you know, one of them becomes an alien, which is something that, you know, we can't change races. So it's um, an, an opportunity to explore that. So that's another that I would choose. But Afrofuturism, unfortunately, is probably a little less represented. I'll probably see more Asian films that are speaking. Mm. So just because there's a bigger market um, and just more movies out. Great. Yeah. Um, are you working on any writing projects? I am. I'm working on a fiction album and um, also a collection, a linked collection called Blueprints for Better Worlds. So uh, I've become somewhat um, impatient with the world moving forward and I feel like dystopian tales don't work, cautionary tales don't work. They don't actually change anything. It just gives you a language to explain the way in which things are deteriorating. You know, doublespeak, look at the Trump era. You know, so we have all these nice catchphrases. We don't, we don't have any actual inspirational work that shows you how to do something. Like, everyone knows what should be done. We even know how to do it, but maybe if, um, if you can actually place it in people's minds in a way where it's as exciting as cosplay or this or that, it'll actually help you do something. So I'm just taking technologies that already exist or have already been designed and showing how in these worlds it can save a world or make it a better world. Not a utopian world, just a better world. Mm -hmm. So that's my current project. And then, you know, try to link that to actual real world, real world platforms and apps and tools to actually help people. So. That's great. Yeah. Um, so if someone was trying to find, I guess, like, where can people find you? Google me. <laughs> so I have a website, all that good stuff. Um, but yeah, I am uh, I'm in Amazon, all those things now. Brick and mortar stores, it's going to be harder. So I would say go online because um, distribution, the small press stuff, you'll be able to find. Mm -hmm. But the things that I'm putting out through Counterpoise Records, you're going to find electronic versions of them or it's going to be print on demand. So the simplest thing is just be to put my name in. Tania D. Johnson. <laughs> um, do readers engage with you on social media? Yeah, they do. Mostly what they say is that I need to say more, do more, because I'm not, I'm not a natural social media sort of person. Mm -hmm. So, but anytime that someone takes the time to reach out and say that or agree or be positive about whatever you're doing or encourage you to do it more, I see that as uh, sort of a gift. They didn't have to take time out of their day to email me or ping me or do all these things. So obviously it was, it was engaging enough for them to, to do that. Mm -hmm. so, I appreciate it. Yeah. Do you have any other, I guess, thoughts you want to share about Afrofuturism? Or? I hope that it can become a greater force than entertainment. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, but I hope that for all speculative fiction. I hope that for all futurism, that it's not just an idea, that we do something with the idea. Do you feel like you've seen that happen? Not the... I mean, there's a material difference if you're an actor, or if you're a director, or if you're a writer. If you work in, in the entertainment field, you have more opportunities because people are more open to that. But outside of entertainment, I have not yet seen that, no. So, but I hope to. And it sounds like the genre is growing, so hopefully more people can yeah, engage yeah. with the work. Yeah, and I think some of it is about defining, like, sort of making that identity one that does something, that makes it powerful in a way where it's not, because it's just like potential, you know? Everything's got potential, it's just what you do with it, so. I think there's a possibility. Make it cool and, yeah, that's all you need. Make it cool. Because. Mm -hmm. If someone's willing to meticulously um, create some sort of a costume, I don't know, no disrespect by calling it a costume for cosplay and like immerse and immerse themselves in that, then they can take that same energy and do something more than pretend. Like what if you could actually make them a little bit, like 10% of whatever it is they're trying to be by dressing up this way. Like actually change some material part of their life that makes them feel more powerful and like the world is bigger. Because that's, I think, I think that's why people do those things. Because they're not satisfied with the current state of the world. Like this is so much cooler than what we live in. So I'm gonna go pretend to live in this world for a little while. So, so if someone is new to Afrofuturism, mm -hmm. what would you recommend? Where would you uh, recommend they start? Well, I'd ask them what kind of stuff they like. I tend to like things that are, I like difficult things. I like, I'm a big proponent of we get through things, we don't get over things. So like, I mean. I, uh, read Beloved as a kid, you know, like and was, was really into it. That's not going to be the book for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It's pretty heavy. So I would have to ask them what sort of things they enjoy. And then, you know, I'd probably, I'd probably still go Marquez or um, Kurt Vonnegut, Octavia Butler, and some others. But yeah, I try to get a read for their personality first. And if they like literary, wordier stuff, or if they want, if they want space opera, I'm gonna have to ask someone else because I don't read as much space opera. But that's what I would say. Any final thoughts or final thoughts on Afrofuturism? I would say um, onward. You know, let's not mm -hmm. be a commodity. Let's not be a flash in a pan. Let's let's be something more and find that way that Afrofuturism can become collaborative. You know, because I would like to see it expand a bit more so that it's it's marginalized peoples in general. Like, what is our future? Mm -hmm. What are we going to define? What are, how are we going to do this? But I do think it's very important for, for whatever group it is to have their, their time and their moment and not just be lost. And like, well, it's not about just you, it's all of us. No, no. It really is about both. Like, I feel like that's the strength of diversity is what makes us different but take what makes us the same and get somewhere new. Mm -hmm. So so you feel hopeful about the job? Yeah, sure. I mean, because what's the alternative? <laughs> That's not, I know, super positive way of looking at it, but, you know, I would choose hope. I would choose more than hope. I would choose actual change, but hope is an absolutely essential part of that. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Grace. Good yeah, question. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Every Tongue's Got to Confess podcast the official podcast of the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Holly Baker and I produced this podcast with assistance from the University of Central Florida, the Association to Preserve Evenville Community, and the Consortium for Critical Diversity and the Digital Age Research, or CEDAR, at Michigan State University. 
Be sure to find our podcast online on your favorite listening platforms and subscribe to never miss an episode. Thank you.